You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Eve about a new way to assess benefit-risk trade-offs and that is especially interesting because it completely and only relies on the clinical trial data that we have anyway. Stay tuned and now some music. I'm working with Eve for a couple of years and he has a very, very interesting career as well that we'll talk about in this episode. So you'll see how people from a very, very diverse background can also come into the statistician's role. And this topic is really important and I think it's becoming more and more important because there's lots of different methods of actions for drugs with different safety profiles, there's different benefits, there's a lot of discussions about minimal clinical important differences and we'll touch on all these different aspects in this podcast episode. So stay tuned for that. Speaking about lots of different aspects, I'm posting lots of stuff on LinkedIn. I'm maybe a little bit of a LinkedIn addict. So if you want to get more of it, then follow me on LinkedIn and join the Effective Statistician LinkedIn group. And also please tell your colleagues about this podcast because we want to have as many listeners benefiting from this content as possible. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library with lots of lots of scientific content and also non-scientific training free registration to all the PSI webinars, which is especially now important with all the virtual from home working and much, much more. Just head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. And if you're already a PSI member, maybe there's something else you can learn there and maybe you want to become also a member of one of the many great PSI committees or a member of one of the special interest groups. So stay tuned for that. Hi, welcome to another episode of this uh, podcast, helping statisticians to be more effective. And today I'm talking to an old friend of mine, Eve. Um, we have worked together and on a couple of different projects and then he became more interested in becoming actually a statistician and yeah i helped him on this path to to get there um but i don't want to introduce you too much eve maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself what was your kind of career and how you ended up in statistics sure sure thank you very much Alex was a very kind introduction. So to give you a little bit of a background, I'm basically, I'm a newcomer to statistics. I originally started out studying physiological sciences and pharmacology um, back in the zeros, so to say, and pursued a PhD in in vivo pharmacology. 
And I started my career in medical affairs. And most of the time I worked in health technology assessment, HDA, and preliminary, uh, primarily basically in the German PRA context. But I soon discovered that I really like working with data. And this is actually a very a variety and complex topic. And there's so much one, one can do with this. So I, I started to pursue a master's degree part-time at the University of Heidelberg, which is a fantastic course, by the way. Um, and it's a medical biometry and biostatistics course there. And as part of this, um, I did this master's thesis with you. So thank you very much for being a very good supervisor to this. And this actually also enabled me to make a lateral move into statistics, where I'm working now and thoroughly enjoy it. Very, very good. Yeah, it's a really kind of nice thing that, you know, you're coming from a completely different background uh, that you then found your love for data and statistics and making meaningful conclusions out of it. And um, yeah, awesome that you, you know, spend a lot of time on the sites and becoming a statistician uh, and it's, you know, putting the effort in there despite, you know, a full-time job and, uh, and a young family as well. So, so lots, <laughs> yes. of, lots of challenges uh, at the same time. Uh, it was quite a stretch, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, your master thesis. Um, it's actually something that is very close to my heart because it's about uh, benefit-risk. And I've mm -hmm. uh, spent a lot of years working in this area, and I always kind of found it's, it's there must be something better. And so maybe this is a kind of first step in this direction to think a little bit different about benefit risk. So um, tell me a little bit about the model. So basically, what you what you already mentioned. So benefit risk assessment. So the usual case, what you have, you're comparing different treatments against each other. All of them have certain efficacy um, parameters, safety endpoints, but the usual challenge is how do you weigh them against each other? So there are established methods which usually target efficacy endpoints, and it's also quite, quite developed actually. But one of the caveats there is that many of these methods, just for example, patient preference studies, these are all discrete choice experiments. So you've got methods like conjoint analysis or analytical hierarchy process. They are all based on hypothetical scenarios a patient has to think about. So this is definitely a limitation. And furthermore, when it comes to adverse events, there's hardly any methodology one can use to judge the relevance of different adverse events. So for example, you do have a drug, or you do, let's put it this way, you have two drugs, and one is causing you more fatigue, whilst the other one is causing you, for example, more nausea. How would you decide now, when you have like the overall picture of efficacy and adverse events, how to judge them against each other? And what's usually done are qualitative assessments. So there is some opinion from the person who's judging this, but whether it's actually reflected in real life or whether it's actually really patient relevant, that's the question. So this was the aim of this master's thesis, basically to take data which is coming directly from clinical trials, so direct evidence in patients which experience an adverse event and then, uh, and then judging is 
the patient discontinuing due to this adverse event or is he staying on treatment? And one can imagine that each patient together with his physician is making an individual trade-off whether the efficacy gains he has seen so far is worth bearing this adverse event. And this basically is the whole topic of this master's thesis. And it relies on a very simple model. So we thought, okay, if we do, do have this situation, how could we model that? And what comes quite easily to mind, actually, it's quite simple. Um, it's, it's <laughs> one wonders why nobody has thought of this before, because it's a, it's a very uh, ingenious um, idea, actually. What if we, we look at the patients who experience an adverse event and they either continue their treatment or they discontinue? And then we use a logistic regression and use this as the independent variable and then model the explanatory and efficacy score which is relevant to the patients. For example, some kind of pain improvement. And then we can see, see what kind of magnitude the efficacy score needs to have to overcome the tendency of the patient to discontinue treatment due to this adverse event. Okay. So that's basically, basically the idea in a nutshell. Yeah. So basically it assumes that um, if you have two patients that both uh, experience that adverse event, one patient hasn't got any benefit from it, he will more likely discontinue because then, of course, the adverse event is more important than the benefit that he got. Whereas the patients that had, you know, a lot of pain improvement, they probably wouldn't discontinue because then, you know, the, um, the adverse event know is more important exactly and, um, and that way kind of you you see a kind of okay how is this kind of line going for 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 you know different improvements in terms of severity and therefore you can describe the relationship between the uh, improvement on terms of the efficacy versus the um, probabilities that you discontinue due to exactly yeah and the interesting thing is now that if you have, what happens now if you have two different adverse events there that you that you basically condition on? So, so let's say you have like the examples that you used, so nausea and the fatigue one. So then you have two two logistic regressions. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, how do you then see that? Um, Fatigue is more important or less important than, than uh, nausea. So basically, there are different ways of, of looking at the whole thing. And what we found out what, what whilst we were doing this master's thesis, so the primary idea was looking simply at the beta coefficient from the efficacy score. That means the larger the coefficient, the more responsive this adverse is this patient with this adverse event is due to uh, is to an increase in efficacy. That is. The, the inefficacy change has more of an impact in continuing or discontinuing treatment due to the adverse event as if there is a very small relationship. Mm -hmm. But you do not only have the coefficient, which is basically depicting something like the responsiveness of this AE to efficacy changes. What you can also look at is the area under the curve when you model this whole, so to say, discontinuation probability curve over the potential, the whole score range of a score. 
Let's take the example of a visual analog scalar VAS, a pain VAS, usually scored from 0 to 100. And of course, you can look at um, change scores. What we did now in this master thesis look at absolute scores. So you basically, at some point in time of the treatment of the study course, the patient does have a certain score on the efficacy scale and then either continues or discontinues. And this you have for several patients. This is how we basically modeled it. We did a score distribution of several hundred patients and simulated a probability discontinuation function. And then you could basically measure what this underlying probability discontinuation function was. And it is for once determined through the AUC, which basically tells you how much likely the patient is to discontinue treatment due to this AE overall, over the whole score range, and together with the beta coefficient, how quickly this probability can decrease when one sees a change in efficacy. And when you now do have two different AEs, they can have different area under the curves or different beta coefficients. Of course, both the AUC and the beta coefficient, they correlate quite strongly with it, which is other, which you can simply think about. If you have a high beta coefficient, that is by a change in the efficacy score, you decrease the probability very quickly that the patient is not discontinued any longer. Then of course you cannot have a high area under the curve because simply the curve is dropping very quickly. Mm. And likewise, when you have a high severity, a high AUC, you cannot have a low uh, you cannot have a high beta coefficient because the curve basically is very irresponsive to changes. Mm. And this actually also what, what we where we aim this methodology at. We are not really interested in very severe AEs, which would be depicted by a very high AUC or respectively by a very low beta coefficient, because we know if a patient experiences these AEs, he's very likely to quit because they're simply so severe, there is no other choice. Likewise, we are not very interested in um, AEs which would have an extremely high beta coefficient or a very low AUC because we would see they are so mild, nobody's really caring about it. It's like a cuff. This is going over, right? So we are more interested in this moderate area. where We've got moderately high or low beta coefficients and moderately high or low AUCs. And this is really, I think, where the strength of this approach lies. And when you do send simulations of several different AEs, you can very nicely show this in, in charts, how severe and how responsive these AEs are to different uh, changes in efficacy scores and do a ranking of them. And then yeah. you can you could use this ranking basically also to elicit weights for structured benefit risk assessments. Yeah. So I think that uh, what you mentioned is really important in terms of what AEs are we looking into. So if nobody ever in clinical trials discontinues due to this AE, then, you know, that obviously doesn't play a big role in terms of exactly. risk yeah. assessment. Yeah. If it's, uh, you know, a complete kind of, so to say, killer AE, yeah, that, that is so serious that you will always kind of discontinue, well, then you probably need to deal with this anyway differently. But it's, it's really about these AEs where you need to have a really an individual trade-off decision. So could be more important than the uh, individual benefit that you have but it doesn't need to be. And then, you know, if you look at, if you not just look into the coefficients of your logistic regression, but actually you plot the lines. Yeah. Exactly. Also done nicely in your master thesis. Then you can directly see, okay, 
where is actually this change happening? Yeah, how steep is the curve? So, so how so the steepness of the curve basically tells you kind of how sensitive it is. Yeah, and of course, where the curve is gives you kind of an overall probability of you know how 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 impactful it is generally, irrespective of of the, the severity. So exactly. And by that, you can then actually understand, okay, where am I also? You know, maybe, maybe my drug is so efficacious that, you know, it's always in this area. Yeah. Where most patients will always continue or the other around. It's always in the area where they will always discontinue. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, that can also help you to, to see maybe, you know, if we have different dosing schemes, yeah, that come up with different benefit risk ratios, we can see kind of, okay, does that have an impact on the, on the overall discontinuation rate? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's the case. If, if you can move then patients to, um, you know, maybe only a little bit, you know, lower efficacy. Yeah. Maybe then, you know, the, the, Uh, side effects really go over this cliff and then they're not so important anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's correct. And what is, what is also very fascinating by this methodology is the option. What, what we um, talked about now is using one efficacy score and measure its relationship with the discontinuation of an AE. What is very fascinating is what would happen if one would try different efficacy scores and see whether it differs somewhere. And by this way, You could also elucidate what of these, for example, PROs, what is really relevant to the patient? Mm. What efficacy score or what AE, if CAEs are used, um, what efficacy score is very irresponsive to any changes and which one is really driving this? So what are the important efficacy outcomes also for the patient? So you would simply use this method and basically turn it on its head. And that's a very interesting further application as well. Yeah. You see, basically, you take an AE that is, you know, in this, that is kind of the, these typical AEs that may or may not have an impact. And then you look into all the patients that have this and look into, for example, for a PRO, you have maybe a couple of different subscales. And that way you can see which of these exactly. subscales actually, you know, have an impact and, and how maybe one subscale in terms of PROs is more relevant. Yeah. So exactly. I think that is really interesting. You know, if you have really lots of patients, then maybe you can even go, potentially go deeper in the future. Yeah. Maybe you can even go look into subgroup of patients, you know, for these type of subgroups, this is more relevant. And for this type of subgroup, this is yep. more relevant. So that says, a lot of kind of further research, I think. Uh, uh, exactly. Completely research. agree with that. So we, we can also easily imagine, like, for example, an adverse event like, let's take nausea. Nausea might be something in oncology. It's something you simply bear because you know you might live longer in case you get over it. Whilst when you only have a treatment against headache, I'm not sure whether you would, you would bear nausea, right? So we can, we can already imagine that there are quite a lot of differences depending on the indication we look at. But as you just said, with lots of data, one could also explore are there differences, for example, in gender? Mm. Do males and females, do they react differently to certain AEs? Or does age 
have some kind of influence. So there are lots of interesting um, applications there. And as you just mentioned, the lots of data would be, of course, quite nice to have. So what we also did here was simulation studies to see how stable the estimates are from this model. And what we quickly realized that one needs actually to have lots of data. And basically, I looked at three different scenarios um, with uh, in terms of patient numbers. I called them the uh, single study scenario, where I assumed we have 300 patients and basically 5% of them experience an AE, which is, which is a common AE. So a common AE is defined by more than 1% and less than 10%. That, that's already common. So when you have that, then you have to see how many discontinue actually by it. So it's, you, you really very quickly get into low numbers there. So that is a single study scenario. Then I got the study program scenario where I said like, okay, we have several studies and a total patient amount of 3,000 patients. And then finally, the regulatory agency scenario. It's quite a bold scenario, to be honest, but this would assume tens of thousands of patients because, for example, FDA might potentially have um, their hands on lots of data in a single indication simply coming from lots of different competitors. And what we saw there when we um, estimated the, stable, uh, the stableness of these estimates, you, need, you do need these high amounts of data to really get good estimates. And I think this is something uh, w which needs potentially further refinement or, or, or further <laughs> research is required, so to say, to maybe tinker a bit with the model where we kind of could make it more stable. So it is a really good idea, but one also needs definitely a good data set to employ this method. Yeah. The nice thing is that maybe you have realized we haven't talked about treatment. So treatment is actually not part of the uh, of the model. And that has a couple of different reasons. First is we just say, you know, the treatment itself shouldn't play a role in terms of the benefit-risk decision. And especially if you're in a blinded study, yeah, it cannot play a role, yeah, unless you're kind of unblinded by, by you know, certain, let's say, efficacy or safety profile. Mm. But, but generally, um, this shouldn't play a role. Also, it shouldn't play a role or it can't play a role if you want to um, have any treatment comparisons based on these exactly. things. Yeah? Exactly. Because um, you can only make treatment comparisons on topics that are agnostic of treatment. Yep. Um by design, yes. That's why, for example, um, essays for certain drugs, yeah, um, they are of course treatment dependent because they measure the, you know, uh, maybe the, you know, number of molecules or whatsoever, mm -hmm. um, or, or proteins or whatsoever that you have in the blood from from these drugs. But the then they, you can't compare, you know, an essay for this drug with an essay for another drug because, well, they are just, you know, you can't compare them because they are different. Yep, yep. And that's why we built this model to be treatment agnostic. Um, that makes also, um, has the positive side effect that you then can pull all the studies that are um, for a specific uh, indication together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you Correct. get yeah. much easier, lots of rich data. 
Sie haben exactly. vorhin das auf sehr, 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 a lot of simplicity in this model as well. Yeah, so, so we haven't, for example, taken into account uh, certain other things, kind of, for example, um, what is the, you know, future prediction for these uh, persons? So, so that's something that we can't measure. Yeah, we, we mm-hmm. for example, does it play a role whether the uh, AE happens Earlier in the treatment phase or later in the treatment phase. Exactly. So, uh, for, yeah. huh? so as, as you say, this is, might be really a confounder. So the duration of treatment you have. So this might make a huge difference. And this has also been shown in quality of life research quite a lot. Something like an adaptiveness to negative or also per- positive circumstances. So it might simply be a confounder. Let's put it this way. We could easily control for by putting this into the model as well. Yeah. Which, but what again would de- require even more data. But this is also definitely looking into, into, uh, worth looking into with empirical data to actually see whether this is happening or reflected when it comes to adverse events. Mm. But yeah, you're, you're completely right. So this is a potential confounder one would need to control for. Mm. Another very important topic is simply by design, by study design. One would need to measure the efficacy score very close in time to the occurrence of the AE. So, for example, if the AE occurs and you would make a efficacy measurement afterwards, not really sure. Uh, It it can can happen by design if you do it at end of treatment. But the patient can already be biased. If you ask him for a PRO, he can have like some negative bias due to the treatment because he uh, experienced the AE. So, and if you measure the efficacy score before the occurrence of the AE, It is it is a time between occurrence of AE and efficacy measurement might, must not be too long because otherwise you're not sure whether the efficacy is still stable at that point in time. Mm. So yeah. this is some uh, a, log- a logistic topic as well there in designing the study. Yeah, and also the efficacy itself of of course needs to be kind of clear to the patient. Yeah, so, so if the efficacy itself is not clear to the patient, but it's just maybe you know. For example, you have a treatment that just reduces your blood pressure or whatever, yeah, mm, mm. Uh, and therefore decreases your risk for cardiac uh, attack or something like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do, how do you make this kind of yeah feelable for the patient? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, then you, of course you have something, you know. The probability of your of your cardiac attack is you know is pretty constant, yeah. Mm-hmm. So or maybe it's you can't really understand how your blood level mm-hmm. changes, yeah, mm-hmm. relate to this risk factor. So so yes, completely um, agree. Yeah, and, and these type of indications is of course much more difficult. It's it's you know if you have you know reduced pain if you have reduced obvious symptoms like skin symptoms or if you have you know obvious improvements on your functioning or these type of things yes then it's it's much more easier uh, than for certain other areas completely agree so definitely this is touches on the point of surrogate parameters so to say what's uh, usually in hta quite quite nicely called so now i completely agree it, it should be patient relevant and it should be there's some should be some effective level of the patient towards their end point 
Otherwise, as you mentioned, blood pressure, another classic example is um, blood glucose. This is not felt by the patient. So I cannot, uh, one would really have to hard to think about how to make this method work with these um, kind of surrogate or labor simply laboratory endpoints. So it should be something which is felt by the patient. And all it needs to be then explained back to the patient. Yes, yeah? so showing back to the patient, okay, with this improvement in terms of your lab values, you have now reduced your risk of a cardiac attack by so much. Yeah, agree. Yeah, so if mm. we now go back and, and discontinue the treatment, yeah, uh, what's the consequences? And then that's, of course, another topic that we haven't covered is kind of, okay, what are, what would be the next steps? Yeah, is there, you know, an easy, you know, other treatment available? Yeah, so, um, but I guess if that is kind of indication specific, then that should be more or less the same for all the uh, patients, yeah? Unless you have something where, you know, um, like in, let's say, uh, virology, you kind of run out of treatments out of time. Yeah, mm -hmm. of complexity. But yeah. um, so these are all topics that need to be taken into account. However, exactly. of course, if you look into the kind of classical approaches with DC and these kind of things, they are also simplified. Yeah. So uh, let's be honest. Yeah. So, so we talked a lot of about the limitations here, but of course, yeah, these yeah, limitations yeah. hold for lots of other areas as well. Yeah. So, exactly. so yeah, of um, course. Yeah. It shouldn't be too hard with our approach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I think it's always difficult to, to find a perfect method. Was it put it this way? It could be another arrow, arrow in the uh, armamentarium, basically, which could inform the results which are generated by other methods. So it could lend robustness to these results. And yeah, I think that's it's it's could be a further option simply to look at the patient relevance of these endpoints. Mm. And a further point, because we also talked about not just the value of different adverse events, but also of efficacy endpoints. Well, what this method could also be used for, because we do have um the better regression coefficient from this discontinuation curve, so to say the responsiveness. What could be used also is to use this method to elicit minimal clinically important differences. Yeah. And classically, they've been derived using opinion-based methods. You ask a physician or a patient, what do you deem minimal clinically important for a patient? You usually get the classical answer, 10 or 20%, right? Because that's what, simply what people assume. Another method is um, distribution-based. So you look at the distribution of the efficacy score, look what, what is the, the variance, And then, for example, you have a classical coincidence D of 0.5. You say, okay, if a patient changed by half a standard deviation, this is what we deem clinically relevant. This is completely data-driven. So yeah. there is no patient view in this whatsoever. So another method is anchor-based methods. Anchor-based, classically, you have a design. You have some kind of efficacy score where you want to establish the MID for, and you have... a Rather simple patient global impression of change score, a Likert scale, which is running along. Likert scale is scored from usually uh, one to five or one to seven, some some kind of um, uneven number because you got the zero in the middle for no change, and then you got plus minus one, two, three for how with the question, how would you personally judge 
how has your condition improved? Like minimally, moderately yeah. large. Yeah. And then basically you bin these patients into these different um, patient global impression of change bins and correlate it with the change in the efficacy score you're interested in. That is a good method. But now we could use this method and ask the question, how much of an efficacy score change would it take to have, for example, a 10 or a 50% um, reduction in the risk of patient discontinuing the treatment due to this adverse event? And this would, again, come directly from the study. So mm -hmm. this could be another possibility to use this methodology. Yeah, and it's then directly kind of experienced thing. Yeah. Um, another topic is this completely indication specific. Yeah. So, so we could think that if l more and more of these studies, you know, become um, available, the study level data become available, and it can be, you know, um, without any treatment data in it. Yeah. Um, You could build more and more of such a database and, you know, um, get this model refined further and further over, over the longer period. Yeah. And especially, uh, agencies like the FDA could, you know, improve that and, and, you know, do the research on it, um, on a continued basis and therefore update it. Yeah. And then. Yep. No need that you need to run this by, you know, for every study, but it becomes kind of more uh, indication specific approach for it. Yeah. And yep. uh, of course, what you need is kind of harmonization on the efficacy side. Yeah. So if everybody uses this different endpoints and um, different questionnaire or whatsoever, then that becomes much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, but especially in these areas where it's more standardized and mm -hmm. uh, we had the uh, people from the COMET initiative earlier on this podcast that is a lot about standardization of these endpoints, um, then that will help a lot to make this model work. Yeah, exactly. No, that would be really like a very good uh, future idea um, if this is coming and further implemented. And so you, you would not, when you, when you think of how the package leaflet looks currently today, You usually see the frequencies of adverse events, but not necessarily the patient relevance. So this could be easily added to this to make a more informed judgment, not only for physicians, but also for patients. And it could also be well used in, for example, simply for HTA assessments, where you, again, you are weighting different efficacy, different endpoints versus um, different adverse events. Because it's, 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 I've so often in my own experience experienced it that, um, We are having this discussion. Okay, this patient is living longer, but he's experiencing this and this AE. Is it worthwhile to live on? And how do you how do you balance that? And quite often, it's simply just um, evened out, so to say. But this is just an opinion. We we don't really know, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is yeah. There's and also a, a huge you opportunity kind of to it. Different classes of treatments that have you know, different uh, method of action and therefore different safety profiles. Yeah, you exactly. can much better kind of understand uh, these kind of overall profiles and, you know, how exactly. summaries they really have, you know, are better or worse for, for the patient. Exactly, yeah. Okay, thanks so much, Yves. That was one of the 
really, really interesting episodes. Um, we have had already a couple of episodes about benefit risk. So if you just scroll back in your player, you'll see a couple of other episodes that, for example, I did with Maria Costa or with Sherul. And um, yeah, have a look into these as well. In summary, we talked about today about the um, model that helps you to describe which AEs are more relevant and which AEs are less, less relevant, especially for those AEs where there's a dependency between um, benefit and, you know, uh, AE driving a discontinuation. And the strength of this model is that it's based on uh, directly of clinical trial data. It's directly based on uh, uh, real decision that patients and physicians make in terms of discontinuing the treatment and not something kind of artificial. Um, however, there were also a couple of limitations like the sample size and things that, like that that we talked about. And um, we hope that this gives you a very different kind of viewpoint on uh, benefit-risk assessment, on clinical relevant differences, which we also touched based on, and helps you to see what could be in the future possible in an age where these kind of data are more accessible. And if you're actually from the FDA, yeah, reach out to Eve or myself if you're interested to learn more about that. If any any final words regarding uh, your overall model? Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't submit it now. I, I guess to 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 make it more publicly known the whole thing. So this is the next step I will pursue and very much looking forward to. But apart from that, not much. I, I really thank you for having me there. It's been a pleasure. Uh, so thank you very much for this, and I wish you all the further best with your podcast. And yeah, it's been a great time with you. Thank you. Yep. And the, of course, the master thesis itself is published, isn't it? So, uh, yeah. It, it might be, yes. So for anybody who's interested in it, uh, feel free to Google it, find any errors, tell me, tell nobody else, and <laughs> then I can use this for the publication. Yeah, uh, we'll actually put a link to it in the show notes. So just get, head over to the effectivestatistician.com, look for this episode, probably if you... Google for Eve, you'll easily find that. And um, then you can also find some links to, to, this, uh, to this part as well, as you can probably see some other parts as well. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And thanks so much for you, Eve, to, for this awesome discussion about benefit-risk tolerability models. Great. Thanks, darlings. Been a pleasure. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes, all the materials that we talk about and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Join the LinkedIn group or join or at least follow me and get more exposure and more content from Marie on a regular basis. So like always, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.